This is Delicious Revolution, a show about food. Part of what I was trying to do with that piece was capture that feeling of the way something tastes that you might have grown up eating. It just tastes totally different in a different place. We were sitting in the living room and, you know, I don't know why there were limes, but I'm like, I'm going to cut one and, you know, eat it. And I, I eat it like some Persians do. I like squeeze the juice into my mouth and then gum it and teeth it. And then you turn it inside out and eat the whole pulp. And I was just there doing that. And my uncle was like, oh, aren't these great? You know, my, and, and I said, yeah, you know, this is, it, and they taste amazing. They've always tasted amazing, but they taste a certain way here, you know, they just have that, it's like, yes, you're never going to taste this like this in, in the States. And I was thinking, yeah, that's so funny. We get so proud about food, but at the same time, he was totally right. And oh, and then what I remembered, I remember doing that in that same living room and my aunt, my mom's older sister, turning to me and say, don't start doing that. I did, I've done that all my life and it's just going to ruin your teeth. But she's like smiling while she says it. <laughs> she knows, like, and she just, you're going to want to do it. So there's, of course, you know, food and family and love. It's all, it's all like packed in there. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Made by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wills. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of the food movement, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists. These people have a vision for a different food system. This first season of Delicious Revolution, we talk to friends who are deeply engaged with many aspects of food. These people have inspired us over many years with their thoughts and stories. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can find us at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. This is Devin Sampson here today with Chelsea Wills, and today we're speaking with Farnaz Fatemi. Farnaz is a poet, a writer, and a teacher of the craft of writing at UC Santa Cruz, and importantly for us, she's a gardener and a lover of tomatoes. Her poetry has been published in Ekphrasis, is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And Red Wheelbarrow and several other poetry journals. And in the anthologies, Let Me Tell You Where I've Been, and recently, Love and Pomegranates, Artists and Wayfarers on Iran, both compilations of works by Iranian writers outside of Iran. Her poetry has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, which honors poetry and literature published by very small presses. My favorite recent work of hers is in... The Tupelo Quarterly, a very personal and lyrical essay about visits to Iran called The Color of the Bricks. I met Farnaz when I took a writing course at UC Santa Cruz in 2002, and then worked as a writing tutor with her students in her class. Farnaz's class focuses on the Middle East, especially Iran and its diaspora, and which was an especially charged subject at that time, and well, it certainly it still is. She uses a wide range of reading from the political cultural essays of Edward Said to the graphic novels of Marjane Satrapi and Art Spiegelman to teach writing and intellectual engagement with some of the world's most strained and violent political situations. Taking her class and later working for her pushed me to find a voice uh, in writing capable of tying together cultural and political aspects of things in a world where the two are very often forced apart. Food figures largely in her writings on Iran. She's also a gardener, and her tomatoes especially are the subject of a vehement love for growing things that's contagious. So, Farnaz, welcome to Delicious Revolution. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
I think let's start by talking about tomatoes. When, when, when did you start? When did you plant your, your first, first serious year. tomatoes? Well, I think the first year I planted was the first year they were serious because <laughs> it just was like instant love for tomatoes. Um, I, so, but I, I was actually around a, a woman who grew tomatoes in the late nineties in Sebastopol and she had like six raised beds of two or three varieties, not a, a lot, but, um, but she, she had tomatoes all summer and I lived there and I took care of them when she was gone and I was just you know, addicted. So then when I had a space here to start planting, I tried to plant, you know, a few different ones, um, early 2001, 2002. And the, the, the point of shift was, um, 2006 when I, I think it was 2006. Yeah. Um, when I took a class on, on starting tomatoes from seed from Cynthia Sandberg at Love Apple Farms. And she was very, a very small outfit at that point. She was definitely raising a lot of tomatoes and selling them at a farm stand on the, on the street, but, um, right outside her, her home in Ben Lomond. But, um, she was just starting to be like a, a teacher and share the knowledge of, of starting tomatoes. And she had like 40 different camera film, camera film rolls, uh, containers of, seeds of so of that many varieties and that she'd saved herself and she had this morning class and you got to learn how to just basically put put the soil in the cells and um spread the seeds out and and cover them to, uh, all the basics but it was you get to read the descriptions of these 40 different varieties and think okay well what's my house like or what's my what are my conditions like but also what color tomato do I want to grow? And I'm like, oh my God, you get to actually think about like what they're going to look like from the very beginning. And, um, and that was really cool. So I think we, we each got to pick like 12 kinds because that's how many fit in the 144 cell. Um, and so I, I picked, I picked some that year that I'm still growing the Jean Flamme and the Black Prince and the Black Cherry. And then I don't think, oh, Carmelo, I've grown a lot. Um, but I remember just like, I mean, I remember the whole crop. But so I grew a hundred, it started 144 seeds because that's, we just learned how to fill our own tray and we got to take it home with us. And then we never saw her again, really. That was like, go, you know, go propagate. And, um, they all, they all came up and, and I'm like, wow, okay, now I have, I, you know, I, we knew we'd have to kill some of the babies, but I thought, this is amazing. I, I'm going to start, I'm just going to give them to whoever wants them. And I started asking around to friends and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll take a couple. And it was just the coolest feeling to grow that many plants and share them from, from that moment. And then, and have people really excited about it and then watch, you know, and then obviously the, the sort of what happens next is in my own garden, I watched all these things grow and it was, I was hooked. But part of that first year is the thing that still happens is that I'm like, I just love growing tomatoes and sharing them with people and sharing the plants. Um, so should I go on about what that led to? Because so, because yeah. the, I mean, it, it's really one of the most satisfying things about growing anything at this point is the fact that every February I start, I start um, like 200 seeds. I start, it's 20 different varieties um, I now have in my front room, which I didn't show you, um, uh, a, 
three tiers of lights of grow lights that um, they get to, they get to live under. And it's like, you know, from a a gardening with kids, like educational catalog, I saw it and I'm like, I am going to save up for that thing because it's just so, it's made everything so easy. But um, I used to have in the front windows, the South facing windows, just like just tables of these seeds coming, starting through February and March. And, um, and then I'd, transplant them up, you know, to the four inch pots. And then I, as soon as I could find them homes, I'd get them out into the world. And someone said that first year, they're, they're like, oh, you're like, you know, the Johnny Appleseed of tomatoes. And I'm like, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I just, I'm not like on a mission or anything. I just, it's so great to grow these and then, and then have, be able to share them. And there's, and, and that happens with like the fruit that comes off my trees and, you know, the lemons. If I have abundance it's a such a it's such a great feeling and i'm sure that's i'm not alone in that just it's it's so satisfying but the the having little baby plants and um and a community of people all over that wants them so even that first year some of them went to my mom in la and she had a patio she didn't have any place to plant but she and her boyfriend planted a few pots and I thought it's so cool that things I started here are in LA. And then the, and then from the second year on, they've gone to, um, really good friends in Nevada City, um, to Seabright and to the mountains and to, you know, the, the, the neighborhood, um, here. And then, you know, it's just, and then I sent seeds the following year to England because I have a former student who now lives in England. And then this last year I sent seeds to Jamaica because I have really good friends with a kid who's an 11 year old who want, wanted to learn about gardening. And I'm like, I'm, you're getting some of my seeds, you know? So, so I save them every year and I since decided to start saving the ones that I love. Um, mostly just out of like, I need to make sure I have these. Um, and then it's, that's another thing I talk about, but it's turned into more about save the saving, but um, but it's it, it just been like, so to have like an armload of plants go out with a friend at the that first year that I invited my writing program friends to come over, I took pictures of all of them because they had their like, like their dozen plants and they're walking out. And I'm like, this is, it's just, it's so satisfying. It was, it was really, really fun. <laughs> what reports do you get back from those plants? this time of year (laughs) well this time of year i mean people are always asking like oh um you know there some of them are like do you still have tomatoes because mine are starting to slow down am i doing something wrong and i'm like you're not you know no one's doing anything wrong um and but a lot of times it's i mean right now it's just people are so happy People are so. I mean, the Jean Flamets. It's a medium-sized. Do you know that's this tomato? It's a medium-sized orange tomato, and it's it's my it's it's in the running for my favorite. But I can I can never give up that spot entirely. To the the Black Prince is really great too, and so was Chocolate Stripes. But it's it grows sometimes until November, and it's still tasty. It's this one here, um, this this orange one. Um, it it um. People, it like the last couple of weeks, are like, I'm still having Jean Plante Flamet. It's so good. <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, and people will, will call and say, like, oh, I, you know, black crim didn't do well. Well, black crim is a Siberian tomato, right? So the fact it's usually does really well in Santa Cruz, but in the drought conditions and then the heat of this year, it's, it's been very sad. And so, and mine were tasty, but they, the plant died. Like, I'm really sorry I planted you in the full sun exposure, 100 degree weather in July. That's ex- kind of exceptional. But um, so I love that. I get, 
I I ask people to let me know what they're how they're doing, but I don't force anyone to. And but I always get I get like emails and I get Facebook posts and I get from England I've gotten pictures you know posted of here's the babies or here's the grandbabies, <laughs> and it's it's great. <laughs> yeah. When did you start saving seeds? So I so I was really inspired by Cynthia, and I started saving that first year, and I saved. Um, she didn't, she didn't, um, talk about, she didn't t- talk about how to save, but I just started researching that. And, um, I started tr- saving a few varieties that year. And like I said, I think I've, ha- I've, I've actually had, I had blight. So I, at one point I, um, got rid of all the, the seeds because I didn't know if that would, what would be affected. And I started over with Jean Plumet, but otherwise it's been like contiguous, you know, from that. That's the, so 2009 to now, those jet jump maze from a seed I got from someplace, um, I can't remember the name now, in Carmel. Um, Tomato Fest. Gary, Gary, uh, Gary somebody is, he's been saving seed, he's been creating his own seed, um, collection. And so I got them, I got a lot of them from him that year. Um, but, so I started saving in that first year and then started figuring out, okay, this plant did really well here and it's also really tasty and it's also really beautiful next to the orange and the black prints and the, um, the other, the, the variety, I think is what I was after. So I started trying different things for the first few years, but I, but as soon as I found something that I knew I wanted to keep, I start, I would, I would save it and, um, keep growing from my own saved collection. And some people get seeds from me and I'm totally, I share as much as I, as anybody wants to, but a lot of people just want to, um, they want, they're like, they're happy to just get the plant and go from there, which is fine. Um, but now I have a few people locally that other gardener and farmer friends that, um, are just also getting excited about seed saving. And so this year we had two different swaps, you know, just, you know, fun, informal things, but it's really great because it's nice to, um, it's nice not to ever buy seeds again <laughs> is kind of my idea. But, um, and I'm sure part of why I was attracted to it was it's very, it's thrifty and, um, it feels like the right way to, to spend the resources. Um, and, but it's also just like you see, you get to somebody else saves a kind of lettuce that you would never try you get to try something new. And so the first few years of seed saving was like, for t- with tomatoes, I was really just trying, like, probably, I probably tried 40 different varieties because I wanted to just experiment. But now I'm, like, so addicted to the ones that I love that I think Paul and I have chosen, like, about a dozen that we're just always going to have <laughs> if we if they're viable. Um, and then I grow a few more than that because other people like things that I don't, <laughs> my, you know, want my friends to have what they want. So, How do you decide what goes next to each other? Um, in the garden or in the bowl? <laughs> Both. <laughs> oh, well, you mean because I said that about? Yeah, it's it's um it's all it's all about the visual composition and it's just imagining it. But I love you know I love the juxtaposition of a big tomato with a small tomato and a light yellow with a deep red. And um, a, I grew up around uh, um, visual beauty. My mom's a designer, and she's so she we we lived. We lived appreciating aesthetics, and um, and I am not very t- talented as a visual artist, but um, but I like it, and so I think that that that's totally part of the the 
appeal is is how's it going to look just sitting on the counter and it's not fetishized it's it's really like i want i'm going to appreciate my tomatoes between the point when i harvest them and when i eat them and when when i cut them up for the salad and then serve them and so often you know i just like i have today i just cut them up and it's just tomatoes because of course we should eat them with the cheese but they look so nice as just a bowl of cut tomatoes and they'll taste really good together but why not just appreciate them like that? So it's it's the, that variety, it's that the palette. I did try growing the um, supposedly black tomato, which is the indigo rose, dark purple tomato, and it and I, it was great. It was I mean beautiful. The plant looks great, but it, it just wasn't that tasty. <laughs> and so I I did it that one year, and we appreciated it, and it it really added this like spe- end of the spectrum. But I didn't grow it again. That was two years ago. <laughs> um, and then the the light-colored ones that are considered white tomatoes are really, really pale. And I haven't found one yet that's that tasty. So it also keeps getting the axe. <laughs> this year, I just the lightest I grew was the um, was, well, yeah, it was Chuck's yellow. Chelsea and I spend a lot of time talking about. Um or doing research about biodiversity in people's gardens. Uh-huh. And so it strikes me that the tomato growers are some of the most vehement lovers of diversity. Mm-hmm. And the, the, they have creative names to tomatoes. There's, there's um, the diverse, the people plant dozens of varieties. So why do you, what is it about tomatoes that makes that, that diversity attractive? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, well, they are, when when they're good, they're so different. They're really I, I and I, and that's been part of the pleasure is having people discover how much flavor tomatoes can have and how nuanced they can be. Um, and and you know there are a few different kinds of red tomatoes in this bowl right now. There and they taste different. And to to be to learn how to appreciate that is is, is really fun. But it's also it's. Um, it's also very particular to individuals. You know, you'd have tomato. Right? People love certain kinds of tomatoes and they, they learned that they really don't like a black tomato for whatever reason. But, um, but I think they're different. Even black tomatoes all taste different, you know, or brown, I guess it's the, the purple. Um, they all taste, they taste different from each other. So you, it, it's really fun to, to, um, it's just, it's, joyful, <laughs> that kind of diversity. Of course, I've learned a lot about um, branching out because I, I first only grew tomatoes and thought, oh, this is just it. And then partly I realized I couldn't do that to my soil. And partly I realized that there's a lot of things that would grow well here and that I wanted that I would enjoy. So cucumbers and peppers are the big ones that like how satisfying to be able to grow those. Um, but and so a, a wider diversity of edible plants has also been you know, pretty interesting. But the thing is that there's so many varieties of tomatoes that do, um, they, that need to be preserved, you know, need to be saved and need to be, to be appreciated, I guess. And so growing the diversity ensures that, I mean, I know I'm just doing like one person, but uh, I'm caring for the seeds. They're, 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 they're protected. You know, if something happens to me, they're there, you know, and, and I've done my part. Now I I didn't tell you too. um, One point this was, I, I got, I have it written down. It's probably five years ago now. 
uh, John, John Falmey and an Isis candy cherry were too close and they got cross pollinated and uh, a hybrid showed up that I didn't realize what it was first. And I was like, what is this tomato? I didn't plant this. Um, it's an, it's what's it doing here. And so I kind of backtracked to figure out what had happened. And, um, and I made a note like this, it was tasty. It was really, it was like a slightly large cherry, um, red, and um, really good raw and really good in salads. And so I just made a bunch of notes like, okay, this is what happened. Save these seeds, um, see if it stabilizes. And so it did. The next year it came back exactly the same. And so it's been like, it's been four or five seasons of this. So now I've named it. It's Escalona Red because it happened right here on Escalona Drive. And my neighbors love it. I mean, they, it's, that we know it will grow well here. We know in this particular microclimate and it's, it is tasty. And I have actually a one set pair of friends that just moved to Watsonville and now that's all they, this year they got six Escalona reds for me and nothing else. So they don't care about diversity. They're like, I found the tomato I love, but I think that's part of it. You can't find the tomato you love unless you try a bunch of different things. I'm curious, did other things in your garden, did you start planting other things in your garden based on what would be good with tomatoes? Well, um, partly the cucumbers, absolutely, um, because there's it is partly it's a um, it's tomatoes and cucumbers. Everyone loves that, but it's a very Persian thing to put those that and lemon and some red onion. It's a, that's a Shirazi salad, and it's and it's a little mint. Um, that's that's a really good combination. Um, although I keep reading other people have versions of that salad, but I I think of it as person, um, and and that I, that was definitely like if I could I have mint and now I have a lemon tree. So like I'm and I grew and this year I grew a successful batch of red onions. So now I have everything in the garden for that salad. Like ah, oh, it's so great. Yeah. So I mean. Partly it's what would go well and partly like a specific dishes. So then I had Padrones when they, um, Meter Street Farms was the first farmer here that grew Padrones and sold them at the market. And Paul and I had them. And that summer we had them. We're like, these are just so fun. It was a long time ago now, but it was, it, we both remember that happening. And I said, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to grow those because that was just, we would, we would buy them even though it was a, an indulgence. And, so I started growing padrones, and I thought, okay, what other kinds of peppers would I could I grow that might work here? It's not hot enough for sweet peppers, but the padrones and the serranos and the jalapenos, and then now Peruvian, um, they all grow well. And then just turns out that range that I just described is kind of a variety of colors, <laughs> and so it's really satisfying to have that like palette of look, look at these peppers, you know, just to go with all the the tomatoes, the cucumbers. I'm pretty. I'm pretty just stuck on like a nice small Persian size, you know, what they call Persian size green cucumber. I'm now growing the long Armenians too. And then again, those are, it's neat because they're different, but um, the, there's nothing that beats those. So I don't know. Did I, did I address what you were asking? I kind of went off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have this feeling that I'm just like no, talking. I, well, I have a question that I'm not quite sure how to ask it because it seems so obvious, but it's that, that, um, it just seems obvious to me that someone who is a writer loves gardening because there's this, there's this act of this tension between inventing and reinventing the world all the time. And also just noticing what's there. 
that are mm-hmm. both are part of both of those crafts. Okay, you're so smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. The so part of what I think for me, and I don't know because I don't know, I don't know a lot of people that do both that way. But I know that what gardening has taught me about writing is part of what you're talking about is that you're inventing and you're reinventing, and you're you're making something new all the time, and it's not new at all because that you grew it before or it already existed in the world once. And, but there's, but it's inc- incredibly generative to start something from seed and watch it take off. Um, so in that way, it's, um, it's, it's like a lesson in that act of, of, of just of, of making something and not, I guess, not thinking you have to be one original, like there's, there's such a, when I first started thinking of myself as a poet, I, I was under, I had that burden of like, oh, I have to be really, really unique and really, you know, really original. And that's, that can, that's like paralyzing, right? So, and then you, you don't really think, listen to your voice if you're thinking about that. And so, so, so gardening kind of keeps teaching me that lesson over and over that, that it feels really good to to make things and that um it's not a it's more than anything that process of of connecting to that pleasure is the important thing and then wonderful things can come out of that but and might and they could be unique and they could be important for other people but i think starting with that that sort of connection is is key and the thing is also in gardening, and I don't know if this is where you were going with it, um, a lot of things fail, a lot of things die, right? And you have failures of seasons, and in that blight season, I, my best friend died that same year, and I, and suddenly, and, and then I had blight, and I'm like, what? This is, this is so not fair. Um, and, and I'm, you know, and I was like, should I not grow, you know, maybe next year I won't grow anything because I don't want to associate it with that feeling. And it was really, it was in- intensely emotional. But at the same time, like I want the next year I had the impulse to plant, you know, and I like, so I did. <laughs> and and to, to sort of not think, well, I'm in my, in, to not have the, the, the knowledge that it could fail, stop me from doing it is that's huge. Um, and I, you know, again, I think sometimes that seems really obvious, but it's, it's also, it's something I feel like I keep like relearning, you know, like, like, duh, <laughs> there it comes again. You know? Um, so, so what the thing is like, I know that I know, I do know a lot of writers that also garden, but I know a lot that don't. And I know just for me, it's a, it is a really important place of, 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 where I, I partly it's I, I can get up from the writing and go be in a different space and sort of and have that be okay and have it be satisfying and not think I'm running away from something um, but sometimes when I'm not writing or I'm not I'm not I'm not inspired or, you know that, that's a that not quite the right word but I'm not connected to writing or I'm not I'm feeling 
bad about myself as a writer or like I'll never write again, which happens, you know, every year for like months. Um, at least if I'm in the, in the garden or, or, or doing something with food, I mean, in the kitchen too, um, I, I feel connected to that part of me that's, that's, has, that's that, that creative impulse or then the impulse to, to make and to make something beautiful. So, oh, there's so many good things in that. <laughs> so hard to pick which direction to go. But it makes me think about another one of your passions is travel. Mm-hmm. Right? So when I hear you talk about that, I, I think about it as a studio practice, right? Creating this space for experimentation mm-hmm. over and over and over again, mm-hmm. right? And the garden is that space, one of those spaces that you come back to. But for you, travel is also yes. one of those spaces. And so can you talk about all those things together in terms of how food plays a role in that? Oh, yeah. Well, it's true that, um, well, I, I think there's a connection to the, in, the travel impulse. What you, what you were saying, you, I haven't articulated it that way, but I think that one thing about travel is that you, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and you ha- in order to, to have a satisfying travel experience, you have to be okay with that kind of all the time. Um, and like I was saying, I think growing food, you have that, you're doing the same thing pretty much all the time. You, you, I mean, I count on certain things at this point with tomatoes, but there's still like this year in May, the, the, it was really windy and dry here. And I had planted, the flowers had already started. And I think I lost a lot of tomato blossoms. That's never happened before in the 10 years that I've grown in this, in this front yard. So like, you don't know, but, um, but I think the sort of what your, the brain does when in, in, um, growing is the same, is like the same thing that it does for me in cooking and sort of, um, approaching, um, eating, (laughs) um, that it's, it's, I'm a, I'm a pretty adventurous eater and I'm a pretty adventurous, reasonably adventurous chef. I do like recipes, but I often tend to like just start there and go. Um, and, and Paul is too. We both are pretty, we've cultivated like a, a space of our kitchen and our, our, this little, this area as like, as well, a lot of pleasure and, um, a place to, um, a place to see what happens. He is always hearing like some new dish that he wants to try, you know, Oh, and it's great. And I think, and he's a writer also. Um, I think there's part of that, that just desire to continue to grow, um, and to continue to, to like the world gets bigger, but it's also, it's getting bigger just right in here in our, in our home. So there's, <laughs> there, there's that. Um, but, and, but we also really encourage each other on the travel side because we, are both, um, it's easy for us to get into travel mode. We travel really well together, so that helps. But I think it's, we're both also just cultivating that, um, explorer mentality of like, what will I learn from this experience? And we've had some bad experiences, but we've still, you know, we still keep going out and doing it. Um, when I hear you talk about all those things, I feel like you could be talking about writing. Or you could be talking about a visual arts practice. They yes. all, in in my mind, they all really mimic each other. Those processes, right? So yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that about travel 
I just knew that, like, I have been, somebody who likes to travel since I was 19 years old, and I kind of didn't, I didn't, I guess I didn't trust it as, like, as nurturing. I just thought it was like, I wanted an adventure, I'm going to save up and have it, you know, but I didn't think of it that, that way. Um, it's in for a long time. And I kind of thought, I kind of thought of myself as like this, you know, travel addict or <laughs> because, and partly because I had people in my life saying, like, why do you travel so much? You know? And I thought of it as judgmental, but I, and it might probably wasn't, it was probably just jealous, but, um, but I didn't, I, for a long time, it didn't seem like it's sustenance in that way. And then, um, I think, you know, Paul and I started traveling together and actually have that being validated by, you know, somebody else, a partner that's as excited about it and um, made me think of like, what is it that we get at? You know, made me just ask the questions, what am I getting out of travel? That's, and you're right. It's, it's very similar, but for a long time, it was this other thing. It was like that, that kind of secret, secret pleasure that was like, oh, I shouldn't do that so much, but you know, why not? <laughs> um, so yeah. I mean, the questions now are about like carbon, you know, and how much travel do I really want to do now that I've done so much of my life? Do I really need to go away for the same kind of experience? And I don't, I think you're, you, what you're saying is right, that there's a lot of places at, here close, close by that the same kind of like this, the, a practice can, can get you. Um, and that's what I'm starting to appreciate in my, in my like, you know, elder years, like in my forties, um, I, I sort of think more about that than I used to. I have a question. Yeah. Can I ask okay. yeah. <laughs> Well, it makes me think about your relationship with Iran mm-hmm. and how, is that travel? Is that like a return to home? I mean, you, you live here, mm-hmm. you were born here, you're Iranian American. Mm-hmm. So you are Mm-hmm. definitely from this place but in your writing what, what was that quote that you wrote i'm not going to be able to find it now about returning to somewhere that you're not from mm-hmm. but that you yes. have always been from or yes so i'm paraphrasing that was a good paraphrase okay yeah. um yeah so it, it's so it's partly traveled to iran and it's partly traveled to a culture you know to to a, a, a sort of spirit of of my family and um and where where i come from um so yes um i still have the desire to go go there but i also you know use writing and i use food and i and to to be in that space of of the the, that culture um i grew up around a lot of iranians and in um from the time i was probably seven or eight because that's when the revolution happened and more more of our family came to Southern California. So I grew up feeling at home in a, in a kind of space that wasn't, you know, anywhere else. Um, and, but it was also this interesting mix of language and, and Iranians and Americans and traditions. Um, and when I got to be like a teenager, I wasn't that, you know, proud of it. And, and also, you know, I grew, I was, preteen and teen during the revolution. So I was, I experienced a lot of, of hatred and just, you know, racism, the, the kind of thing that you're like, you don't realize what's going on when you're that age, but you 
in retrospect, I figured, oh, okay, that's that's why I felt the way I did. I stopped calling myself Iranian and started calling myself Persian. You know, those a lot of things that other people experienced. I didn't realize other people were experiencing them, but but now I know. And so, um, as a as an adult, I started feeling like I had moved so far away from my my um, origins in some way. I mean, those are really my origins are Iranian American or American Iranian. Um, that I, that, that it, it seemed important to me to try to figure out what part of what, what made, what's made me who I am. And then I, a lot of what's made me who I am, I really love, you know, I really, like, I really care about the certain things about Iranian culture. And there's, I can be critical of certain things too, but I think there's a, that there's so much that we don't have access to as West in, in America about Iran that, um, it's, it's really, it's, I'm curious about. And so it's partly a personal like attempt to understand. And partly I feel like I have an act, I have access as, and as a writer, I feel like I do want to, to, um, articulate those things that I see because I'm, I'm the person that can, you know, I'm not, I, I don't, it's not a burden. It's not like I'm like sort of on a mission. It's just, you know, you see things that you've experienced things you're noticing. And as you return to it and like sort of go back, keep going back to this material, um, I want to say them and I want to put them, have them be real in the world. So, um, so that's, I, th- I think a <laughs> part of the answer to your question. And, um, and, and I haven't been able to go since, well, it's been almost 10 years. And, um, but I, when I did travel there, I traveled regularly and then got to live there for a while. And it was just a great, it was a, it was a great experience, a surprisingly good experience right after the first time I went back as an adult was three months before nine 11. And then I went back right after that. And that's when I think you and I met. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's an, a, an opportunity and, um, something I, something I feel like is important to stay connected to. Too many questions. <laughs> well, so something that stands out to me in your writing about Iran is you write about memory and food. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a deeply feminist act, first of all, because mm. I think it continues to be how our bodies tell stories, mm. right? Is eating together and mm-hmm. sharing those moments. But also, it makes me think about these tastes like these memories of taste that you don't even know that you have. Uh-huh. Right? So can you talk about, can you describe some experiences like that in Iran of maybe of homecoming or something yeah. through these tastes? Yeah. Well, so I think I, um, in love and pomegranates, which is that one of the anthologies you mentioned, uh, the piece in there is called Shirazi limes. And, part of what I was trying to do with that piece was capture that feeling of the way something tastes that you might have, you might have grown up eating. Um, and it just, ha- it just tastes totally different in a different place. Um, and so I even, you know, I even had those kinds of limes, um, in the States because some, you know, you can get them and, um, and there's Mexican limes are similar. Um, but, when I, um, when I went to visit in 2001, I went back to this space that was my grandmother's apartment 
her living room in her apartment that I'd been in when I was five and when I was seven. And that was the last time. And she, this first trip back, I went with her and my mom and my twin sister. And I, I spearheaded that trip. I really wanted to go. And I said, shouldn't we all go together? And everyone said, yes, my, it was my grandmother's last time back. Um, and she, and, um, we were sitting in the bunch of people, um, sitting around in that living room and I, there, there were, you know, I don't know why there were limes, but I'm like, I'm going to cut one and, you know, eat it. And I, I eat it like some Persians do. I like squeeze the juice into my mouth and then gum it and teeth it. And then you turn it inside out and eat the whole pulp. And I was just there, um, doing that. And my uncle was like, oh, aren't these great? You know, my, and, and I said, yeah, you know, this is it. And they taste amazing. They've always tasted amazing, but they taste a certain way here. You know, they just have that. It's like, yes, you're never going to taste this like this in, in the States. And I was thinking, yeah, that's so funny. We get so proud about food, but at the same time, he was totally right. So that, that's what I was trying to write about. But at, at the same time, like, um, so that happened. And, oh, and then what I remembered in that scene, I was 33 years old. Um, I remember, um, doing that, in that same living room and my aunt, my mom's older sister turning to me and say, don't start doing that. I do. I've done that all my life and it's just going to ruin your teeth. But she's like smiling while she says it. <laughs> she knows like, and she just, you're going to want to do it. So, and I, but I was like, Oh my God, I remember that. I remember Friday. Like was the first person to say that. Um, so there's of course, you know, food and family and love. It's all, it's all like packed in there. And, and, Iranians eat together like in great groups and they, it's a really, it's growing up in LA. It was a really like the one thing we would get together on the weekend and have dinner at somebody's house. And it was always just a totally satisfying, like fun. I'm, I like, I'm comfortable in large groups of people because of that, you know, like that size, you know, not like, I, I don't like to go to concerts anymore, but, um, but I, it's that I'm like, there's just a, a level of community and love and, and festivity. Um, so that, that happens to me more too when I'm in e eating in Iran is that like people are so, you know, like, isn't this food great? Isn't this yummy? You know, pass that, pass this. And there's a kind of like, there's just a verbal enthusiasm that I'm sure people in other cultures have it, the enthusiasm and some of them are like that, but Iranians are definitely like they savor it. And so e just eating with other people in Iran is a, is a kind of experience, um, I, in that piece, The Color of the Bricks, I also wrote about this um, abgushteri, which is, abgusht is, it means like meat water. It's, it's like a, a stew. It's basically this kind of traditional, um, all classes, have, you know, it's a very working, work a day meal. You can go get it in the middle of the day and, you know, been just cooking it and it's tasty and good for you and reasonably easy to do. Um, sometimes there's no meat. It's just the, you know, the meat, the broth. But, um, the, we, my uncle, the last time I was there took me to this in Esfahan to this Akushtari and he's like, Oh, you'll love this. I know, you know, and what is great is that it's like a rundown kind of greasy and, and filthy and tiny upstairs place. It's hot. And he knew I'd love it. Like I, I was just, I was so glad that he, he, 
he learned who I was, that he wasn't ashamed. He wasn't trying, he, he, he knows some fancy places and he's very, you know, very, very good palate and can eat well, but he like, you have to try this place. And so part of the experience is just like that, you know, every, the, mostly men were there having their midday meal. Um, but he, I was with my younger, young cousin, she's very young at the time. And, um, and, her mom and him and we just we had this like we had this lunch and it just and it tasted so good and I've had that I've had abgoosh all my life and it has first of all meats taste different in different places because of what the the animal's eating right so there's that but um but I and I don't you know I don't usually eat much meat but in Iran I'm always like yeah, I'm gonna I'm totally gonna try that I that's I've got to and um and it just had it was like it it is the the Proustian thing about like it brings all like the the memories back of where you first ate it or where you only ate it, but it's also just that all the meal all the abgushts I've ever had were there in that abgushery with me, and then this 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 one you know, that was my was my uncle's favorite and um, special because of that too. There's. That tension in that that piece specifically about the Shirazi lime of um, where being in a in a home talking about food and I think this comes a lot at a lot of moments in your your writing. There's um, there's this this recognition of like a deep creativity um, in feminine spaces and not necessarily you're in Iran and they're not necessarily voluntarily feminine spaces, but there's this feeling mm -hmm. of deep feminism and talking about what goes on in a kitchen and what goes mm -hmm. on in a garden. And uh, it has to, mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, cause it's not going to go away. I mean, <laughs> um, the impulse to, to, I mean, it, part of it's the impulse to make, make great feeling spaces, right. That's not gonna, you can't, you can't stop that. So it is, it's um, for sure for a lot of women in Iran, it, there's an act of like um, of rebellion or of just empowerment to say, I'm going to have to cover my windows and I have to, you know, not, you can't see me dance, but I'm still going to have people over and I'm going to going to. And, and of course now that's happening even more than it used to, but, um, and some defiance about it, but, um, but there's a, there's, you know, that drive to, to have, to share food and to share, um, to share with other things with other people. That is, yeah, I think it, it's fair to say it's feminist. Um, that communal impulse is, um, it's just, it's, again, it's a really big part of Iranian culture. So I do think, I think some men are encouraging it too. Like I know plenty of it, my of family members that are, you know, are going to keep cultivating that feeling, whatever other like logistical requirements have to happen. But, um, I, yeah, I think that I do think that it's, um, it's just, it's a requirement <laughs> in order to be alive. So one other question that I, I, I really wanted to ask you is because you teach mm -hmm. writing and you teach, cause you teach at UC Santa Cruz, you teach and you teach that age, you teach a lot of students who are really, are dedicated to or have the aspiration to make a more just world. Mm -hmm. um, and you teach writing in a really 
with an emphasis on the creative part of, <laughs> of, of writing. So what, what is it? And this is something I've been thinking about in the food movement in general. It's like well, the, the food talking about food and maybe it's because we talk about hunger and really dire situations, mm-hmm. but it, there's this feeling that keeps coming up that it feels sometimes oppressively practical. Mm-hmm. So, so what is the role of creativity? What is the role of poetics in, in a movement? Well, of course, there's always going to be the individuals who are driven by the practical and there should be. And the, that, that's, that seems the, that seems right. And that seems that's somebody's trusting themselves to, and, and following that. And I think the thing about uh, the world now, I mean, the United States in the 21st century and what, what, how, how we're living and how we might, what we might be headed towards is that more, um, the people who are, in, um, in, inclined to be creative need to be. <laughs> um, and so not, I don't think everyone is an artist, but a lot of people who could be aren't because they don't, they're, they're, it, that's not necessarily valued or they didn't learn how to be, they had no models for it growing up. Um, and so, poetics and um and creative work of any kind um is it's often just a really basic need that an individual has to to you know to find that part of them um i came to understand that, that i was a creative person or like you know could even think of myself that way very late i mean i was i was after college i that i even thought oh that's really that's important and I identify with that. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know why it's, I don't partly, I think because my mother was a, a, a creative person, I thought I can never be like that. <laughs> you know, I think that was maybe part of it, but, um, but I've not, you know, the, I just, I was, I was encouraged to be a, a good student and, you know, and do good and, um, I had, and I also was inspired by a lot of teachers in college that were really political and just kind of sort of, you know, also attract, I could, I could think practically and I could, you know, consider, Oh, what can I do? Um, what should I do in the world? And then, and I think so. So I think partly I was like experienced that limitation, you know, like got, so wasn't encouraged. And once I figured out like, well, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to feel like my life is meaningful if I don't make things <laughs> and part of, and that's part of like that and making um, important relationships. Those are the key things. I know if I don't have that, my life like feels just not meaningful and I don't want a meaningless life. So those are the thing, you know, once I figured that out, I'm like, okay, so you can't always, you can't have, I was, I was like in my, in, after grad school, I got this really high paying marketing job and I took it cause I had, just coming out of grad school and did it for a year. And I'm like, this sucks. I'm not doing anything else in my life at all. And, and my entire family, you know, they, they, they understand it now, but they're like, you're walking away from that job. I'm like, how can you do that? And I'm like, cause I can't do it. <laughs> no. So, so a very, very f- physical and visceral experience of blocking that part of my life out. I think, I think it means that I don't know. I don't think, even half my current students necessarily need to be artists or, um, or may, or even want to, but there's a sense of like trying to figure out what makes meaning for 
each person that is very important. And I think we don't talk about that enough in the academic setting. And I think there's a way to do that and still, you know, develop professional lives and develop, you know, marketable, you know, perfect careers. And um, so I don't think it ha- they have to discount each other. And so that that's the role in the movement. I think, I, you know, I'm not answering that explicitly, but I think we can't say this is how anything should look. We can't, we can't say like, it just, it's all about the results and, you know, and there, there, there's just not a place for everyone. If that's what we, if we, everyone has to be practical, everyone has to be like activists. Um, and there needs to be, cause that's, we want, I mean, I think the thing I learned from the political people in that March France and Bettina Aptheker too, that come up that in, when I was in college is it's, it's important to be able to envision the world that we're moving towards. And that vision needs to be positive and needs to be, it needs to be exciting. And so, and it's like Emma Goldman's like, you know, if there, I, if I can't dance, I don't want the revolution. I think that's a paraphrase, but that that's important. So, so how do we, I think art, art and art making is so important to that. <laughs> I'm not telling any, you anything you don't know, but <laughs> Seems like a great place yeah, to I end think to me. A, yeah, what a, a great interview. <laughs> Is the, it? Um, I, yeah, I just, I guess, where can people who listen to this read some of your work or follow along with some things that you are doing? Oh, I wish I could say I have a website, but um, I am, I'm, my, I, I have a lot of work online. So Googling my name um, definitely reveals that um and the color of the bricks is that piece that you referred to um the most recent longer work that's up online um and yeah and i'm i'm i i I would love to continue the conversations so i'm open to that sure that all those links are included with this so check check that out we'll we'll put a few of those more recent pieces of writing there yeah All right. Thanks so much for it. Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah. Great questions. (laughs) Very satisfying. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wills. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can find us at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. You can get in touch with us there, too. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening.